Now, our guest speaker for this morning needs no introduction for most of you, I would say. Pastor Bill Ehlers was the pastor of Bethesda Church for some 20 years, I believe, and uh, we are so excited and thrilled that he has agreed to come back and preach this morning. Thank you so much, Bill. Please, let's give him a welcome. Thank you. I feel like I should... uh take my glasses off and change them to other glasses like all the women do who come up here and use this pulpit. (laughs) But I won't do that because my glasses are progressive lenses, so (laughs) as long as my theology is not progressive, I guess we're okay with that, Yuri. Good. So um, I wonder if you can identify with this person who came to me not very long ago, and he had a concern about his own spiritual life. He said, you know, Bill, I try and try and try, but I never seem to measure up to what I believe God has for me. There's something wrong with my life. I, I think I need a, a fresh touch from God. I think I need um, a deeper walk with him. Maybe I need some kind of a deeper life conference or uh, something to, to help me get through this because I keep failing. And uh, it's almost like what Paul said in Romans 7, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And, and the things that I, I do, I don't want to do. And I keep stepping in these same mud puddles over and over and over again. What can you recommend for me? I need more of God somehow in order to live the kind of life that I know God wants me to live. So, I wonder if you've ever felt that way in your own life as you go through and you sometimes just feel like you're failing this Christian life and you need something else. If you can identify with that, I think that the passage of Scripture today will go a long way to address that kind of concern. Now, before I I move into that, I just want to remind us of a few doctrinal points. And that is, what is salvation? What does it really mean to be saved? Well, we say there are three aspects to it, don't we? The first is called justification. And uh, that's where we got on the path with God. That's where, in a legal sense, God looked at our sins and he forgave them and he turned his back on them. And uh, he declared us to be righteous, even though we're not completely perfect, are we? That in God's eyes, from a judicial point of view, justification means you were saved in the past. Now, hopefully you have some time in your life when you remember when that happened, when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and you were saved, and he forgave your sins and you began the Christian walk. The second aspect, though is what we call sanctification. And, uh, and that's where we're all at right now. And then, of course, the third part will be glorification. That's when we die and we go and we're with the Lord. And then we are perfect. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sickness. There's no more sin. Um, and God completely perfects us at that point. So we talk a lot about heaven as evangelicals. And, and we want to meet there one day, meet our loved ones who have gone on before us. We talk about 
being saved in the first place and sharing your testimony as to how that happened. But the bulk of our time here on this earth is spent right now. And that's the sanctification process. And we're going to talk about that today and what it means and, uh, and how, we, how we live the Christian life. So, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I will have that scripture up on the screen, but if you do want to follow it in your own Bibles, and perhaps you might want to mark it up a little bit, put a few notes in there, it's okay to do that, but not in the Pew Bibles. <laughs> Romans 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2. So Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your spiritual act of worship. So let's go through this. So uh, the word therefore indicates that there's something that he is building this case upon that went before so in Romans 9 through 11, he's building a case for um, the state of Jewish people, Israel. And he's making the case that um, we're all in our sins, whether we are Jews or Gentiles. And God has extended his mercy to all. And for all who believe, they will be saved, the Jew and the Gentile. So um, in view of that, he says, I urge you, brothers. He's, he's coming alongside them with this compassionate plea, almost as a father would be pleading with a child. And he's, he's urging them. He's saying, I really want to help you become what you want to become in view of God's mercy. And then he talks about how um, they are brothers. He's talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers, members of God's church. This is not something that uh, an unsafe person is going to be able to do, what he's going to advocate here. And he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, understand where he's coming from here and, and the, the world in which his listeners lived. This is the, the, the Greek mindset. He's writing for Romans, but it's a, it's a Greek pervasive mindset. And that was a dualistic approach to the body. They believed you had your mind and soul, but you also had your body. And they believed that the body was totally degraded, unregenerate, that it could not be redeemed. And so uh, the noble part of your body, uh, of your life, that's your mind and your spirit. Now cater to that, you can draw near to God with that. But as for the body, listen. You might as well just give in. If you can't beat them, join them. That's how they believe. So whatever vices you have, whatever lusts you have, you might as well just give in to it. That's what they believed. And, and, and Paul has uh, got a lot to say about the body. And, of course, he would counter that whole Greek philosophy. So, for example, in, uh, he talks about um, how, where, 
how he would buffet his body in Romans chapter 9. And verse 27, he says, I, I beat my body into submission, I make it my slave, indicating that there is a kind of warfare that's going on here, and we have to really be disciplined in our approach to our bodies. And then he says in Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. So he's just been talking before that about this wonderful, lavish grace of God and how where there was sin in our life, the grace abounded even more. Now, in light of that, someone might make the case, well, then I guess I can just keep on sinning if God's grace is so great that it just envelops all that sin, then I might as well have that Greek dualistic approach. He's saying, no way. Don't presume upon the grace of God. And then he says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God or glorify God with your bodies. So we have, uh, upon being redeemed or saved or justified, God's spirit is planted in us. And he begins to do this work in us. And Paul would say that any work of God within you that does not also include your body is not going to please God. And so um, that's why he, he talks about our, our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in fact, um, here is a verse that is very important. And this is First Thessalonians 5.23. It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. So there it is. It's comprehensive, isn't it? So uh, instead of a dualistic approach to our lives, body and then spirit, he's saying, no, I want your whole body, soul, and spirit to be one, to be whole, to be integrated. And this is the only way that sanctification is going to work. He uses that word sanctify here. Sanctification. Now, that is a, a word definitely worth talking about. And really, what it means is to be uh, set apart. Set apart, in this case, for God's noble purposes and his holy purposes. And so... Um, what I would, what I would say, um, is this, this word sanctification can be applied to to anything. It can be applied to people, which is what he's talking about in this case. He wants you to be set apart for God's holy purposes, but it can apply to anything. The uh, the wood in this pulpit could have been used to make a, a bar or a chair in your kitchen, but instead it was crafted in order for it. To, hold a Bible, and uh, it's for God's purposes. The wood's no different, but in this case, it's used for God's purposes. There's all kinds of things around here. Like, oh, this music stand. These are amazing. <laughs> I was just going to say they're so durable. <laughs> Uh, 
Well, you know, something always goes wrong, right? These things, made by the Manhasset Company, have been around since I was in band in junior high school. Honestly, this exact music stand, not this one, but these kind of things. They go up, they go down, they, they do all kinds of things, right? And they're, they are durable, believe me. And they can be used in junior high for some aspiring musician who's playing a squeaky clarinet, or it can be used with the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra, or it can be used right here in this church to hold Yuri's microphone, or to hold Michelle's music, or to hold somebody's Bible. Nothing different about the music stand. It's just that it's set apart for God's purposes. That's all it is. I'll return this. In better shape than it was. All right, you got that? I don't have to belabor that point. You and I, if we are redeemed by God, have been set apart for God's holy purposes. Now, we're not perfect. We are still flawed because we're in this state of being sanctified progressively. And yet, um, God wants to use us so that our lives are pleasing to him. So he says, offer your bodies as what? Living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, um, of course, this goes back to the temple and the tabernacle before that, the Levitical form of worship, where animals were sacrificed on the altar. You know the stories. And, uh, of course, when the animal was slaughtered and the blood was spilled there on the altar, um, when God saw the blood, it appeased his wrath. It was as if he turned his back on the sins of his people. He didn't look at them or count them against him. But they still had to have the blood spilled. And so, when the animal's flesh was burned, the smoke gave off what the Bible calls a pleasing aroma to God's nostrils. He smelled that, he was pleased. Now the book of Hebrews, you know, says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away from that sin because they're animals after all. And so that is a type that foreshadows the coming of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The animal sacrifices didn't take the sin away, but they appeased God's wrath for the moment. And then when Christ came, it was as if these people who had been, uh, whose wrath God had been appeased, it wasn't counted against them. And Christ's sacrifice on the cross took care of the sins in the past, that's with the Jewish people, in the present and in the future, and that's us. See how it works? So the blood of Christ is effective for all people. He is the perfect Lamb of God. Those sacrifices back in the Old Testament times couldn't be a lame animal or one that had an open sore. It had to be a perfect animal. And when God saw that perfect animal, Jesus was the perfect Lamb of God, without sin, who takes away the sin of the earth. The other thing that's different is that 
Jesus was willing to go to the cross. He set his face to Jerusalem. And much like the story that Yuri read earlier from Genesis 22, Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son, and his son Isaac was willing to go onto the altar. He didn't panic. And, and yet, at the end, God stayed his knife in Adam's arm, didn't plunge like him. And God provided a ram in the thicket. Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. So as we, as we look at that story, there's something else about the animals in Old Testament days. Do you think those animals offered themselves willingly on that altar? Do you think that uh, the, the lambs and the bulls just kind of walked over to it and just hopped up on the altar willingly and said, okay, slay me, burn me? course not. There probably would have been a lot of terror in those animals as they're in their pens there and they smell the blood and they saw what was happening. There would have been a lot of mooing and braying and, and they would have been terrified knowing they're next in line. Jesus offered himself willingly to cover our sins. Now what Paul's saying here is that we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, willingly. And when God sees your willingness, he gives you back your life. He doesn't slay as with the animals, as with Christ. Christ took the penalty already so that you will not have to die eternally. He gives you back your life. He says, here, remember what I've done for you. In view of my mercies, now offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Go out and live, but live for me. Set apart for me. And this is your spiritual act of worship. We talk about corporate worship. That's why we're here today. We, we sing praises to God. We hear the scripture read and taught. We fellowship together. We come with humble hearts, ready to receive what God has, and we come to give him our praise and our offerings. That's our corporate worship. The kind of worship we're talking about here is worship that happens every day. Seven days a week, God wants us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, and when we do that, we please him. It's an act of worship, spiritual worship. All right, so... Um, what's next here? Verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So do not conform. Now, that word conform has a couple different shades of meaning to it. And one shade of meaning may help you. Have a seat. You're welcome here. And afterwards, there's, there's food downstairs. You can join us. Sure, have a seat. When we talk about this word conform, really what it means is to take the shape of. And so, um, right now, your bodies are conforming to the pews. They're taking the shape of the pew, right? 
when we sing later, you won't be taking the shape of the pure Murray will be standing up, right? So it's, it's like uh, pouring water into a vessel of some kind. The water takes the shape of the vessel. And he's saying, don't be taking the shape of the world. The other shade of meaning on this word conform is that like what an actor does or an actress. And an actor in that day had a mask on to represent the character. Today, actors don't use masks, but what they do is um, they, they memorize the lines for their script. But more than that, they will try to put themselves in the place of the person to whom they are portrayed. And so uh, that means trying to get into the head of the person they're playing. If you're playing a, uh, an, an English dowager, then you need to develop an English accent. You need to have the kind of posture that she would have. You need to, need to put yourself in her shoes. If you're playing a cowboy, then you just come in and you, you act like a cowboy. Right? Even if you're not a cowboy, you play the part of the cowboy. You're conforming to that person. And Paul says, don't conform yourself to the shape of this world in which we live. Now, the world in which we live is uh, superintended by the prince and power of the air. Who is that? Satan is the one who is right now overseeing the world systems. God's above him, but he's given Satan reign. He's on a leash. He can't do everything he wants to do, but he is the one who is in control of this world. And those who are in the world and do not believe in Jesus Christ, he says, don't conform to that kind of philosophy, that mentality. And you see it every day. And you see it in the news, you see it in the movies, you see it all the time. And this world is temporal, and it's temporary. And Paul would have us not conform to that which is temporal and temporary, but conform to that which is eternal, namely the Word of God, and people. Those are the only two things that are going to last. So when you invest your life into anything, it would be into the things that are of the kingdom of God. And that is what would, would please God. That's his will. So he says, um, in fact, you know, uh, let me give you a little story. Dwight L. Moody who's the evangelist, uh, lived back in the 1800s. He was the founder of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. So Dwight Moody made a trip to England once, and he visited a, a wealthy gentleman, a donor, and uh, he was admiring this gentleman's canary in a cage. He says, my, what a beautiful bird you have here. It's lovely. And the man began to apologize to the bird. He says, yes, the bird is beautiful but it doesn't sing anymore. So what happened? Well, I, took the, I was in the habit of taking the cage and placing it outside my window, and the sparrows gathered around with their incessant chirping. And pretty soon, all my bird could do was twitter like a sparrow, and can't do anything else. And Paul saying, be careful because that will happen to you if you conform to the ways of the world. You'll become like it. You will take the shape of this world. 
The way out of that, or to keep that from happening, is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, this word transformed is a very interesting word, and it's the word metamorphosis. And you all know that from, uh, you know, junior high biology, right? The caterpillar to the frog, caterpillar to the butterfly. This word transformed is about making that progressive change. This is sanctification. Now, here's the way it works, though. It's a little different from that simple illustration that you learn in biology. Even though you are a caterpillar, God declares you to be a butterfly. He says, when I look at you, I don't see you as a caterpillar anymore. I see you as a butterfly. I see you as righteous. You see, this is justification. God declares you to be righteous even though you're still in your caterpillar state. But then, you begin this process of being transformed, metamorphosized. And that's where, in the biology analogy, you go into the cocoon stage. That's where we are now. You're in the cocoon stage, and there's things happening in your life, gradually, and eventually you will emerge as a butterfly. You are justified. God says, I see you as a butterfly. And now, in this earthly life we live, we're being transformed into a butterfly in what God sees us. That's how it works. And some of us keep uh, falling back into the caterpillar state. And we think, oh, what a worm I am. How horrible I am. How sinful. What can I do about it? I need more of God, or something's wrong with my life. And part of it means that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our mind has to be transformed. Now you see, again, because we are uh, an integrated person, God wants us to be saved holy, body, mind, and spirit. The mind controls the body, doesn't it? Now sometimes for us, the body controls the mind, which is regrettable. If we let our bodies control our minds, then we give in to all the lusts and, uh, and vices that the body will produce. The body's not our enemy. It's very useful to us and very useful to God. How else are we going to interact with the world? The body's our interface with the world. It's not evil. It's not degrading. But if we give in to it, then it sabotages our opportunity to live for God. And, and so, the way you control the body then is what? Renewing of our mind. The mind has to control the body. That's the discipline of Christian life. So, as we, as we do that, see the, in the book of Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's the old King James. So, what you think about you become. In Colossians 3.2, it, uh, let me read it to you. It says, set your minds on things above, not on earth. 
For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ is, your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory, glorified completely. But now while we're here, we set our minds on things above, not on earthly or worldly things. And, in fact, Jesus himself had something to say about that in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Now, in that, um, let's just read it. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that you may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So we have this situation right now that we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And the way that we prevent ourselves from becoming of the world is to have our mind transformed to those things that are noble, those things that are godly, those things that have eternal value. Now, you may be thinking, okay, this all sounds good. Um, How does it really help me do what I really want to do? and stop doing the things that I don't want to do. Well, as I wrap this up, I want to try to be as intensely practical as I can. And uh, now last week, if you were listening, if if you were here when Neil preached, he was talking about um, bringing God into your avocations or your hobbies or your, your life. And how does your daily activity reflect what is most important to you? He made this statement, the only way to cure an obsession is to be obsessed with something else. Now, that sounds kind of funny on the surface, um, and it's kind of a play on words, but it is very true. The only way to cure an obsession is to be obsessed with something else. So whether it's something that's obviously sinful or whether it's some other habit that really detracts from your uh, fellowship with God, then whatever that is needs to be replaced with some other obsession. Obsession sounds like a really crazy negative word, but, uh, but that's really what it means. So... It needs to be transformed into something that is more worthy of your time as a person who desires to set your life apart for God's purposes. Now, I I was cleaning up files this week, sorting things, and I came across this article that I had torn out of Regent College's um, magazine, the publication. I just tear things out, throw them in my file. Behold, it fits for today. It's an interview with a man named Larry Crabb. Now, he has written books on Christian counseling. He's, um, he's got a lot of good things to say. And so, um, 
this interviewer asks him a question. He says, I noticed that you're against counseling methods or even accountability relationships that are moralistic. Will a healthy, connected community achieve better morals without the pressure? So listen to this answer. <clears throat> yeah, I sure think it will. What does God want? I don't think he wants morality. You may be shocked to hear him say that. You may say, what is he talking about? Here's what he said. I think he wants intimacy. And then, when you're intimate with him, of course, you become moral. Because immorality gets in the way of intimacy with God. Does that make sense? You know that yourself. When you have done things that you know bring you shame and guilt, you just kind of want to run and hide from God and put the thing you form. Your fellowship with God is broken. Your fellowship with God's people suffers. But when you have that intimacy with God, that perfect intimacy like Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall, then all lines of communication with God are open. You can hear his voice. He speaks to you. And everything's clear. Now listen to this statement. A very important principle for sin management or self-control as that you will never give up a pleasure until you find a greater cure for an obsession is to replace it with a better obsession. So you listen to that and you say, oh, is that really true? You know, or is this just some kind of uh, Christian psychobabble that he's trying to push on us? Well, I believe it really is true, and um, in fact, it's not just Neil Creighton or Larry Crabb, but back in the 1700s was a Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers. You've never heard of him, probably, but Thomas Chalmers gave what has become a very famous sermon called the expulsive power of a new affection. And uh, you can still read that online. Just look that sermon up in Thomas Chalmers and the top right up there. You can read it for yourself. See how he explains it. And of course, as preachers did back then, they used a lot of words to explain anything. But people could sit for that back then. So what he is saying in that is that moralistic persuasion doesn't work. So if somebody just shakes the bony figure at you and says, you got to stop doing that, it rarely works. Just to tell them to stop doing it. That's moralisms. Seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by the mere force of mental determination. You think about that for yourself. Have you ever been able to just say, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to stop being angry. I'm going to stop... Smoking, whatever it is, whatever it is, I'm just going to stop. It really doesn't work very well when you think about it. But to replace that vice or sin or habit with something better or more pleasurable does work. Now, it works for little kids too. Imagine you had a little toddler, like uh, let's say 14 months old just walking, 
and when they walk, they kind of fall every once in a while, they stumble. So this little toddler of yours, or your grandchild, somehow gets a pair of sharp scissors in his hand. And he's running with these scissors. And what do you do as a mother when you see the child running with sharp scissors? Do you freak out and you rush over to him and say, Stop! And you start screaming. And if you do that, you see what will happen is the poor little kid will probably just burst out of tears and still be holding the scissors though. What do you do? Well, maybe you reach in your pocket and you find something shiny, like your keys or a cookie. You carry cookies in your pocket and you go dangle that in front of them and say, Look what I got here. And this little kid escaped to you. And the look at that, and the scissors will just go thump on the floor. Because you've introduced them to their life something more interesting, something more pleasurable. It works that way with teenagers, too. I've noticed this, where uh, they may be really into video games, and you're always saying, parents, why don't you stop that? Don't waste the time. And they keep on doing the video game. But then someday, you will see them with their phone, and they're texting away here. This goes on for days, and while they're texting, they're smiling. What's happened? <laughs> Don't ask me how I know this stuff. <laughs> they found a lover. They found somebody that gives them joy and pleasure far more than the video game. And that's how it works, you see. Now, um, this is where I have to allow the Holy Spirit to apply this to your life. Because it would take forever if I tried to give examples of all the different vices and habits and sins that can plague us. It would take an hour just to tell you my own stuff. But this is where the Holy Spirit, if you're open to him, will identify those things for you. The psalmist writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Put your finger on it. In fact, the language is far stronger than that. Put me on trial, God, and see what you can accuse me of. I'm open to it. Now, in reality, because of God's mercy, the Holy Spirit will not accuse us. That's the devil's job. He's the accuser of the brethren. God will, through the Holy Spirit, identify it so that you can then go back on the path of righteousness from which you've fallen off. So whatever that may be in your life, you know, it could be, um, it could be that anger is one of the things that plagues you. It could be some other, some other anger is a sin. Um, because Jesus said, so you never kill anybody? Good for you, but I said to you, even if you're angry with your brother in your heart, you must have, you would have just as well killed him. You see, so there are all these kind of things, and we don't like them about ourselves. We know that, and we know it doesn't please God. We know it breaks our fellowship with him, but um, how do we get over it? Now, let's imagine that 
one of the issues that you face is worry, anxiety. And you may have just reasons for that. There may be circumstances in your life that you're very concerned about. What do you do? Just say, I will stop worrying. I will stop being anxious. Um, Does that work? The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And so Paul had something to say about this. It's not just Thomas Chalmers. It's not just me or Neil or Barry Crabb. He said in Philippians 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he does use a bit of moralisms there at the beginning. Be anxious for nothing. But there is a remedy for that. It's not just moralisms. It says, here's what you do. In every situation, you replace that by prayer. You draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And petition, put your request before him. And do it with thanksgiving. Why will you do it with thanksgiving? Well, because it will remind you of all the other things that you have been blessed with. And you'll begin to count your blessings, you know, hand them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done, and, and then you stop your worry, right? Those thoughts of worry fly out the window when you begin to thank God for what you have in your life right now, and how he has provided. And after all, didn't Jesus talk about this? He knew that we had needs. Needs for shelter, needs for clothing, needs for food. But he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know what? The sparrows have the same needs. They need to be fed. Aren't you more valuable than them? Will he not take care of you? And then in Matthew 6, 33, then, to finish that thought, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Kingdom of God, things that are eternal. The opposite of things of the world. Now, some of the things of the world are good things. They're not necessarily sinful, but they're temporal. If I find myself investing myself in too many things that help me to live better here on this earth and more comfortably, and they take up a lot of my time, then they become my obsession. Even if they're good things. Food, shelter, clothing. But if I go overboard on that, and it distracts me from the things that are eternal, then they become a wrong obsession. Jesus says, don't put your minds on those things, but seek first the kingdom of God. Then these other things will take care of themselves, if you get your priorities right. The peace of God, then, will guard, it transcends all understanding. It's like, Wow. Peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ in Jesus. And then he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. 
these other things will not be thought about if you substitute them with noble thoughts, pure thoughts, holy thoughts, praiseworthy thoughts, lovely thoughts. These other things will fly out the window. So back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. If you offer your body as a living sacrifice, if you do not allow yourself to be conformed to this world, if you work on transforming and renewing your mind toward eternal things, what will be the result? At the end of verse 2, then you will be able to test and approve Test and approve. That means you'll be able to confirm, you'll be able to accomplish that which God's will is. You want to know how to know the will of God? This is the will of God. His good, his pleasing, and perfect will. If you do those things, you will be accomplishing God's will if you set yourself apart to do it. And it will be pleasing to God. And the intimacy that you desire with all your heart will be fulfilled. And you will find that the things that you want to do, you will find yourself doing. And you'll find that the things that you don't want to keep doing, you won't be doing. Because you've offered your bodies to God, you've offered your mind to God, and your mind is being transformed and God will be pleased with your life. I leave you with this thought. Be different from the world. Then you will be set apart to make a difference in this world. You will accomplish his will. You will please God. And you will be in right standing with God and his people and with yourself. You will be an integrated person. Holy body, spirit, and mind, pleasing to the Lord. And this is your spiritual service. This is your spiritual worship. Let me pray for you. We commit this time for the Lord. Father, we're grateful for the scriptures. We thank you for the truths that are there. Help us to apply them to our lives. Holy Spirit within us, help us to become all that you want us to be as we. Our lives are metamorphosized. During this time, we are here on the earth, so that we can be set apart to accomplish your will. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus.